Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The popular image of rabies is a dog foaming at the mouth. But what are the realities of that? In Pennsylvania, that's an important distinction to be aware of. Pennsylvania ranks third in the country in the number of rabies cases amongst wild animals, second in the overall number of cases, and leads in the number of cats infected with the virus. A large number of these cases are reported in the mid-state. Joining me today to discuss rabies and what to look for to keep yourself and your pets safe are Dr. Elizabeth Santini. She's a veterinary uh, medical field officer with the Bureau of Animal Health and Diagnostic Services with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. Dr. Santini, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Amy Kunis, who is the executive director of the Humane Society of the Harrisburg area. Amy, welcome to the program. Good morning. If you have a question or comment about rabies, Pennsylvania, we are second in the country, as you just heard, in the number of cases reported. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You know, this is one of those things that uh, often get the sense that uh, people know, I just gave that description of a dog, uh, you know, foaming at the mouth and people have it in their mind what rabies looks like and but at the same time, they may not know some of the basics behind it. So, Dr. Santino, let me start with, what is rabies? Rabies is a viral disease, so it's caused by a virus, and this virus can infect any mammal. Um, while we do have some mammals that are more likely to contract rabies, there are, that it can infect any mammal uh, in the wild or domestic animal population. That includes our, our house pets and also our livestock. Well, why just mammals? Well, uh, we think it has something to do with mammal physiology, although, interestingly, there was one case of a chicken reported recently in India that, that developed rabies, but uh, but we say it's really a mammal disease, and that has to do with, with how mammals work, Right. although some are much more susceptible than others. Mm-hmm. Bats. I understand that bats uh, are one of the uh, animals that uh, transmit rabies most often, and again, one of those things that uh, we've heard about rabid bats, but probably a lot of people don't realize that bats are one of the biggest transmitters. Uh, it is true. And bats get kind of a bad rap. They're kind of thought bats as... Bats get a, a bad rap. Really okay. a primary vector of rabies. And while it's true that, that a percentage of their population is infected, um, it's not that all bats carry rabies. And, and you know, what we do have to keep in mind is that um, most of the human rabies cases in this country are from bat exposure. Um, and that's because we don't have rabies endemic in our domesticated animal populations like they do in dogs in places like India and Africa. Okay, so let me just get this right. Most of the rabies cases in this country are spread by bats. Well, most of the rabies cases of humans. And of so humans. every year we have a, about, on average, one to two cases of clinical rabies in humans. It's a very, very tiny number compared to the approximately 50,000 cases worldwide of people who die of rabies every year. So we have a very small number of people who actually contract rabies and die of rabies. But most of those cases in this country come from bat exposure. Um, And that's because uh, people have handled a bat and not realized they've been bitten in some cases and have developed rabies because because of that. Some people have traveled to other countries and then come home and have contracted rabies from endemic areas somewhere else. So So you still maintain that bats get a bad reputation? I do. (laughs) I do. Bats are incredibly important in our ecosystem. (laughs) That they are. But they're spreading rabies. Uh, yes. <laughs> very, very, very few cases. So we do not need to be afraid of bats. They're very, very. Important. I don't know. I don't like uh, them like, flying around my head. You know, put it that 
that way. They control a lot of diseases. It's very important. Amy, you ever have a bat brought into you? We have not. We have not had a rabbit bat brought into the shelter yet, but you probably just jinxed us, so thank you. Thank you, Scott. (laughs) We just heard they get a bad rap, so you you treat them differently when they bring them in. What do you see as far as uh, rabbit animals being brought into the shelter? We will see um, animals that are, um, most of the animals that are brought into the shelter that we suspect could be rabbit are animals that are acting um, odd, that are exhibiting some type of odd behavior. Um, You're absolutely right that the traditional thought of rabies is that, um, was it the old Yeller movie? Right, that's one. Yes, right, Cujo, you know, the foaming at the mouth. But there's actually two different forms of rabies, one of which expresses itself in that way, and the other one which can somewhat be more dangerous because it may um, allow an, a, a human to to think they can help the animal and want to approach it is when the animal is sort of acting more lethargic, um, more neurological, can, you know, um, just sort of out of sorts. Um, what you have to seem to describe is uh, dumb and furious right. forms of rabies. Exactly, exactly. And the dumb form um, could arguably draw a human in to, you know, to want to help the animal with a furious one is definitely more you know, stand back, stand off, and, and clearly there's something wrong. So we'll sometimes see people that will bring those more dumb form animals into the shelter, um, and maybe it isn't rabies. Maybe it is something else, but then those animals would need to be observed and or tested. So we do we do encounter that. We also pretty frequently encounter animals that are brought in with what we refer to as bites of unknown origin. So if a stray animal comes in, or even if it ends up being a, a person's pet that just happened to get out of the yard or whatever with a bite of unknown origin, that has very specific consequences for that animal. And that animal does need to be quarantined and observed to make sure that whatever they were bitten with um, did not have the rabies virus. And I think... Um, you can probably speak to the quarantines. There's different levels of quarantine depending on if the animal that was bitten is up to date on vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big point of confusion because it, it it's very critical to consider who did the biting and who was bitten. So Absolutely. say we have a dog that's bitten a person um, in the last 10 days, then that dog is observed for 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 a 10-day period. And we know that in the last seven to 10 days of life, the animal can be shedding the virus in its saliva. And and by the end of that time, if it has rabies, it will have expired because the clinical syndrome is very, very short when they're showing signs and they can actually spread the virus. Up to 12 days, something like that? Yes, but mm-hmm. we say generally 10 days. Mm-hmm. Um, if the animal has been bitten by a known rabbit animal or by a potentially rabbit animal, then the animal itself that's been exposed is quarantined either for a period of 90 days if it's current on its vaccinations or a period of 180 days according to current Pennsylvania law if it is not current or never been vaccinated. So um, we have more confidence that vaccinated animals will not develop rabies if they've been exposed to a rabbit animal. When you say quarantine, uh, again, we all have this vision in mind. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. It it basically means limiting the exposure to, uh, and as the doctor had pointed out, to other mammals. Um, You want to limit the dog's exposure to um, other pets and, um, you know, it's not as uh, the, the main concern is the bite between pets. You, you don't have to keep the dog locked in a cage, you know, for 180 or 90 days, but you do need to limit their exposure. So you're not going to PetSmart, you're not going to the dog park, 
Um, you don't want to have mom bring Fifi over and have the dogs interact. You really want to be thoughtful. You want to behave as though they are carrying the disease, even though you know you're, we're not sure. But um, usually how we really get involved with, with rabies and the rabies laws is having those bite incidents. If an individual is bitten, it's very important to, again, look at do we know who bit the person? Is is that dog or cat up to date on the rabies series? Because then there's consequences for the individual, and then there's consequences for the animal. So it's it's very serious, and we are you know we are lucky in our state that we do have um, you know pretty clearly laid out laws and rules to how to handle it to make sure this doesn't turn into some kind of epidemic. Mm-hmm. And just just to follow up on the the quarantine issue, in some municipalities, in a very few places in Pennsylvania, they are required to be quarantined in an approved facility. But for the most part, the animals are quarantined to their premises, and they must mm. stay on their premises. Yeah. And, and the owners have to, again, control their exposure to other mammals and to people outside the household. What if uh, the owner of a pet doesn't want their their dog or cat or whatever the pet is, ferret, uh, quarantine and doesn't want to cooperate. The, usually that's when the um, the dog warden will get involved. We've had a few of those where the dog warden has removed the dog from the property and then our, in, in our case, our shelter has held on to it, but they could also go to an approved veterinary hospital. Um, if there is a sense that you're not going to get cooperation from the owner, in my experience, we have seen the dog warden step in and say, you know, this unfortunately is not optional. Mm-hmm. Most people do cooperate, though, because I would imagine it yes. the idea of having yes. a potentially rabid animal it creates a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. And once you explain to them that this is a nearly 100 percent fatal disease, not just for the animals in your household, for the people as well, that, you know, they they tend to take that very seriously. And some people do choose to euthanize their animals rather than quarantine them. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, we've been jumping around here in the first few minutes because there's a lot of issues. But, you know, you, Amy, you said something about we don't want an epidemic. But I gave those statistics in the introduction that we are second in the country in the number of rabies cases. We always are amongst the leaders uh, across the country. Uh, what would be an epidemic? When rabies first started in Pennsylvania, when uh, wildlife rabies first emerged. And that was only like 30 years ago or so. In the 80s, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, some some hunters and trappers brought some raccoons up from down south and and, um, unknowingly imported rabies into our wild animal population. And it just took off from there because we have wonderful habitat Mm -hmm. um, and and we have the, the... raccoon vector here um, and lots of them and lots of places for them to live. Um, so once that happened, it was considered an epidemic at that point in in the wildlife, but it's become entrenched now. And now it's what we consider an endemic. It's here to stay. We will probably never get rid of it. And we will likely never see another, quote, epidemic again, especially in our domesticated animals, because we have rabies vaccination laws. And people are aware of it. And they do do a good job, generally, of vaccinating their animals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would be my answer to the question. If we don't remain vigilant, and people don't vaccinate their animals or get lackadaisical with vaccinating their animals. That's when it could turn backwards, um, I think, for us. And and that's why our push is constantly, you know, to take opportunities to do shows like this and remind people of the importance of getting the vaccine. We saw... Um, you know, especially which I'm sure you, you can both imagine with the downturn in the economy, um, people were cutting, cutting corners. And, and sometimes those annual vaccines 
are something that people were skipping. So really remembering the importance and constantly staying vigilant, reminding people you have to get your animals vaccinated, I think I think is the key to, to stopping it from turning into anything more than it already is. Well, I know you with the Humane Society of uh, Harrisburg area that you have low cost or free. Yes. But I mean, what does it cost if you, if if someone wants to go in and I mean, obviously most people do it. Mm-hmm. I do it, but my wife handles it, so I, I don't know how much it costs. <laughs> um, most low cost clinics around the area are it's ten dollars. It's a it's a ten dollar vaccine, so there there is really little to no excuse um, to not get your animals vaccinated. Um, we offer them at the shelter. We have low cost clinics three and four times a month. Our uh, next one is July sixteenth. It's a Saturday from nine to eleven. Um, and there are other animal welfare organizations in the community that offer the vaccines at the same price. Occasionally, we do give certificates out for free rabies vaccines. So, you know, just if you if the message we try to send is even if you at this particular point in time, for whatever reason, cannot afford, um, you know, full veterinary care or a full round of vaccines at very least. And, and it is the law. Um, get your animals vaccinated against rabies. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing rabies in Pennsylvania with Dr. Elizabeth Santini, who is a veterinarian with the Pennsylvania Department of Health, or excuse me, Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, and Amy Kunis, Executive Director of the Humane Society of the Greater Harrisburg Area. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. As I am wont to do from time to time when I follow your lead, I kind of jump around. So I want to go back to some of uh, the basics about rabies. Dr. Santini, how is rabies spread? I think there's so much misinformation and, and misunderstanding about rabies in part because it works so differently than a lot of other diseases. Um, Rabies is spread through the saliva of rabid animals, and so it has to enter a bite wound victim um, through an open wound or a scratch. Um, So what happens is it doesn't circulate in the blood like a lot of other diseases. It's in the saliva, it enters through an open wound, and then it actually travels up the nerve channels and it makes its way to the spinal cord and brain, where it then starts affecting the animal's behavior. and then into the salivary glands. And so the the then exposed animal develops clinical rabies and starts to spread that virus in its own saliva. May surprise some people that a person or an animal does not have to be bit, correct? That's true. Any open wound, like a scratch, or even through a mucous membrane with a wound, uh, like inside the mouth or the eye, where the wet saliva can get in containing that virus can infect a person or another animal. All right. So what about the symptoms? Let's start with the animals, uh, because animals obviously have it more often than than humans are exposed to it. Uh, What are the symptoms that an an animal would show? You've kind of touched on it, but uh, what are some of the classics? Yeah, we talked about the classic furious and dumb forms of rabies. And what we like to tell people is that rabies can kind of look like anything because it affects the brain. So unusual behavior for that animal. Absolutely. So in Mm -hmm. the case of domesticated animals, if you have, say, a dog that's usually very bouncy and energetic and becomes very lethargic um, and doesn't want uh, the company 
company of, of its normal humans or owners, then that could be unusual behavior for that animal. Um, if you have a wild animal that doesn't show fear of people, which is normal for wild animals, then that certainly is a clue that that animal could be rabid. Mm. So unusual behavior for the given animal. Um, but it can, again, look like anything. And sometimes we just see that animals have a very short course of disease. They just get really sick and die quickly. Um, so if that's an animal that's potentially exposed to human in the last 10 days, then that animal should be tested. And uh, one time I was driving on a country road and a raccoon ran out in front of the car stood up on its hind legs and growled at me. Oh, that sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, well, it, was. It, was, it was. No, no, I didn't think it was normal at all. And I'm, That's not normal. You know, I kind of, I think I, I swore at him, yeah. but then he took off, but I called the police and Amy, you were telling me that's usually what people do when they yes. suspect that yes. there's a rabbit. Everyone gets called. Everyone gets called. <laughs> Calling the police is usually the good uh, first step and then then someone else will get called <laughs> to come get the animal. But eventually it gets around to where it should, right? Yes. Yes. Where should be the first place that a person calls if they suspect there's a rabid animal? A person can certainly, and I would I would let you kind of jump in, they can call the Department of Agriculture. Um, I, I don't want to speak for all humane societies, but you certainly can contact your local animal shelter. And if we're able to to get the animal, um, it's usually a work, a work in progress. Some municipalities have animal control officers. Um, that can help us get the animal. So it really depends on what municipality you're talking about. But any range of options is, is, is a good one, um, from your local um, extension office to your local animal shelter. And, and the police are obviously a good, a good source to start with or your municipality. Is it a good idea to call someone even if you suspect there's an animal yes. out there? Yes, absolutely. It's not one of those deals where you see an animal acting strangely that you just say, ah, he's not, he's not having a good day today. No, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's actually imperative that you call because it, it could be an animal, hypothetically, as we just talked about, finding the animal that bit. It could hypothetically be an animal that has already bit someone that, that we're, we're looking for or someone else is looking for. Um, so I think, I think it's really important that you make the phone call. All right, let's take a phone call from William in Perry County. William, you're on the air. Yes, I'm on the air. Hi, Scott. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, good. I just wanted to make a quick comment or a short story. I'm a retired rural letter carrier from Mechanicsburg, and about eight years ago on my mail route, I was uh, delivering a package, and they had trouble at the house with their lawnmower or something, and I stopped on my way home, and I, as I walked up to the house talking to the lady at the door, their cat came about 15 or 20 feet across behind me and grabbed me by the back of the leg. I couldn't get the cat off of my leg. The lady had to come over and put her fingers in the mouth and pry it off of my leg. Hmm. We wound up having to, um, I went to the hospital to have the scratches checked out. It was a pretty good wound. We cleaned it up really nice, but it had turned red by the next day with a you know, cat scratch fever, I guess. Mm -hmm. But we found out the person that it was a small farm there that in the barn, they had been bitten by the same cat. So the three of us wound up having to get injections. Now I had to get, what is it, uh, shots for the wound itself. Mm -hmm. And then I had to go through the series of shots in the arms. It's not in the stomach anymore. Some people were afraid it was uh, in the stomach. Yeah. But, yeah. I was going to talk about that a little bit later. Go ahead. And the turns out the animal control came out and captured the cat. But they had to destroy it after they checked out the uh, the brain. And I think it was by Monday the, the state had actually called me and said that I must start taking the series of shots. But I had already convinced the uh, hospital to give me the shots. And they started the series then. So was the, was the cat rabid? 
the cat was rabid. Cat was rabid. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And it was an angry, it was a furious, angry cat. Oh, yeah, it and sounded that way. Everybody thought it was just mad that day. And I said, I don't think no. so. I didn't look at the cat or talk to the cat, but it actually came up from behind me and latched on. Well, good. I'm glad that you did that, William, and uh, that you were able to call and tell us the story. But uh, that's a lesson for a lot of people. Hey, thank you very much for your call. And one, one more question. Okay, go ahead. With, in regards to this, since I've had the shots, I was told that unless I was bitten again by another questionable animal, I would just need a booster shot, but this is a lifetime shot? That's true. If you've received a series of, of vaccinations and treatment uh, for a known or a potential exposure in the past, then if, if you have a future exposure, then you just need a booster. And they usually just boost that vaccination. Um, for high-risk individuals like veterinarians and people who work at animal shelters, mm -hmm. people who trap animals, um, it's recommended that they all be vaccinated. So if we were to have an exposure of some kind, then then I wouldn't need the full series of shots. I would just need a booster because I've been vaccinated previously. Oh, thank you very much. Well, William, let me, let me mm -hmm. ask you something because the shots, that was one of the things we were going to get into. But since you have gone through it, I'll ask you firsthand experience. What was that like? Because I've heard people talk about it, and they all say, oh, no, not the shots. The shots are horrible. Actually, the shots were just as if you got an injection for any kind of, uh, you know, series of shots for medicine or, uh, you know, anything else just in your arm. You know, one week was one arm, one week was the next. But it, w it was based on a timely manner. It had to be done exactly, you know, with a window of uh, hours, I guess they said. That's what they emphasized with me. But the farm was quarantined for a period of time, and I don't remember any other animals that were being, uh, you know, put down. Huh. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call. Uh, that is a good example of what, what we've been talking about. But uh, those shots, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that people complain about it is because it's more than one. Right. And there are very few people who look forward to getting shots. <laughs> but one of the things that he talked about was you no longer get them in the stomach. Is that a myth? Is that one of the things that maybe it's changed that you used to have to get them in the stomach? Yeah, yeah. That hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. So now, if you have a bite wound, they'll give you several injections at the site of the bite wound. And then over the course of the next few days and weeks, you receive other injections um, at certain intervals, and usually in another large muscle like the arm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's no longer the stuff. That's great. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Amy, you had talked about cats, and I mentioned this in my introduction, that Pennsylvania leads the country in the number of uh, cats that have been found to have rabies. Yes. And, you know, the statistic I saw was that uh, Pennsylvania leads uh, the in cats by 62% over the second leading state of cat rabies, which was Virginia. Virginia, right. But you told me that that's a little bit misleading. It, it's a little bit misleading, not that it's not an important fact, but so far this year, as of May 2016, the number of cat exposure is 10. In Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania. Okay. So, so, and Virginia, I think, was four. It must have been for 60%. Right, right. We're not math majors, but I think well, exactly. we Exactly. That's why that I went out. to law school. Don't do the math. <laughs> math is hard. <laughs> so, so it's still, it's 10. And that, and we don't want to, you know, again, minimize the the reality of that, but it, it's it's ten. So it's not like we're, you know, we have four hundred rabbit cats that are roaming 
um, the state of Pennsylvania. Um, but I, I think um, the doctor had a good point with respect to to why that's important with respect to human exposure. Yeah, although I, I do think that um, because we have so many feral cats in Pennsylvania that yeah. it goes undiagnosed very often. And we have mm-hmm. often potential exposures where people are bitten or scratched and then we don't have the cat to test. And so I, I do think that that, num- that 10 number for this year so far is is misleading. It's, it's making people believe there are fewer rabid cats in there. I think there probably are more rabid cats. But but because most people understand that you shouldn't approach or touch or handle a sick wild animal, most people will try to help a sick cat, a sick domesticated animal. And so, you know, the cats are the animals that are most likely to expose humans when they're rabid because they're pets. Right. Because people are going to want to approach that. You're Mm -hmm. you're absolutely going to approach a cat that's ailing Versus a raccoon, I think it's more innate to say, oh, I need to call someone versus, you know, you need to call someone from the cat. But the one thing that I wanted to touch on that the caller had talked about with respect to going to the hospital, and um, I think you heard him say he had to specifically request the vaccination. In in some of the bite cases that we have handled at the shelter over the years, um, one of the things that I would, I would put out there to individuals is... Um, Many times when they go to the emergency room into a healthcare provider, that healthcare provider may not be instantaneously aware of the issues surrounding an animal bite, and they might not even know the importance of making sure you know the vaccination status of the animal that bit you. And you may have to advocate for yourself that you need the rabies series. Why? Why? Why, why wouldn't they know that? If you, if you went to the ER and said, I was bit by a, a cat, a dog, a raccoon, whatever... I, I'm not sure. I don't know if you it's, have a thought on that. It's not necessarily an issue they deal with on on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, and because the disease itself is a little bit confusing and the law res- with respect to rabies is a little bit confusing, uh, I think they're just they're just unaware of that. I think it's a valid point. So but so if you have been bitten even by your neighbor's dog and you go to the, the hospital, you want to advocate for yourself about being tested for rabies. Not advocate for yourself being tested, but you want to make sure that you know that you need to have the vaccination status of the neighbor's dog. And if that neighbor's dog is not vaccinated against rabies, you, you, need, the, you need the vaccine series. You need to go ahead and go through the series. So, well, I'll, I'll just jump in there for a second. When when someone goes to the emergency room or to a doctor's office and it, they have an animal bite wound, that doctor is obligated to report that bite wound to the Department of Health. And yes. so at that point, Department of Health does intervene, and they do know what questions to ask with respect to vaccination status. If that animal isn't showing signs of rabies um, during that time, then it can be observed for 10 days. And and there are many circumstances where people will wait, especially if it's a vaccinated animal, yes. to, to receive post-exposure treatment. Certainly if that animal dies within that 10-day period, it should be tested for rabies. And is it true that the only way to test an animal for rabies is after that animal's dead? Correct. Yes. They have to examine the brain. So the, yeah. the animal has to be destroyed. Yeah, and that's yes. a very important distinction we were talking about. If you think you have a rabid animal, whether it be a domesticated animal or a wild animal on your property, who do you call? You can call Department of Ag, certainly for lots of good advice, but we can't handle that animal or do anything with it until it has expired. And so if you need someone to come and euthanize a wild animal, you can either call Game Commission or your municipal or state police. Um, in some places in the state where it's very rural, then sometimes state 
police are, are your only option. Um, if it's a domesticated animal, then, you know, we talked about options for for humane euthanasia of that animal at some of the shelters or at a veterinarian's office. You know, you mentioned game commission for the first time. I, I often hear about the game commission getting calls, uh, especially in some of those rural areas, that uh, the game commission is the first one they call when they see mm-hmm. a wild animal anyway that mm-hmm. uh, is, is acting a little strangely. We have a few emails here. Uh, Sarah from Elizabethtown doesn't want to stay on the line when she called in. She's an exotic animal enthusiast. Can you talk about possums and rabies and misconceptions? Oh, possums. <laughs> oh, everybody. You like bats and possums. Oh, <laughs> I do love possums. Everybody fears the possum, and we get it's lots of animal. calls about dogs having attacked possums, and people are worried that their their dogs may have been exposed to, to rabies by the possum. But the truth is possums get attacked because possums don't move very fast. They have very few defenses. <laughs> and we see so few cases of rabies in possums. We actually had one in the 1980s. And then just a couple of years ago, we had another. And it was actually uh, in in this, this Harrisburg area. Um, so very, very unusual to see possums with rabies. We think it's because they're marsupials and they're just a little different from the other mammals. And so they just don't seem to, to contract them. Either that or they don't survive the attack that would make them rabid because they yeah, have so they few either, defenses. They either die or get hit by a car. One of the right, two. Right. Uh, see, that is unusual because they do move so slowly. You would mm-hmm. think that a furious, rabid mm-hmm. animal right. that they would... That What about ferrets and uh, some of the other animals that... Uh, I, I don't know if a ferret's considered a, an exotic animal mm-hmm. nowadays anyway. Um, so within Pennsylvania, it is, it's the law that dogs and cats must be vaccinated for mm-hmm. rabies. And there's this funny little thing about cats. Um, it, the law actually says that it's uh, cats that spend any part of a 24-hour period indoors with humans. So people are often surprised to hear that the law requires house cats exclusively, if they mm-hmm. live in the house even, to be vaccinated for, for rabies. Um, but for other animals, um, for which there are no labeled vaccines, veterinarians can use the vaccines that we use in our dogs and cats and other livestock um, to vaccinate other species as well. It's perfectly legal for veterinarians to use that in an off-label manner. And All so right. just about anything can be vaccinated for rabies. You just said livestock. Mm-hmm. Cows and sheep, do they, uh, Absolutely. they can get yep. rabies? Yep. So. Every year we have a handful of cattle and um, deer. We have horses, horses yeah. that contract rabies. Yes. Okay, so Amy, I asked you this question beforehand, but I want to ask it on the air. Uh, most unusual animal that you've had uh, brought into the shelter with rabies or suspected rabies? Most unusual? Yeah. Snow geese from Carlisle. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they were... Not a mammal. Not a mammal. And it, they were just acting weird, so we... They we, always do. It, it very busy. We had... Um, it was down by the War College, and we, you know, we knew the statistically that they really should, but they were acting so neurological, so we, we quarantined them. Did they have rabies? No. No, okay. They did not. Well, that's, that's good to hear. They did not. We had several questions from this <laughs> one listener. The difference between the three-year rabies vaccination and the yearly, and when are either used... Um, yes, so there are different rabies vaccines available for for domesticated animals, and generally, um, when people first acquire their puppy, um, within that that first few months, they receive the first rabies vaccine. That's a one year rabies vaccine, and then they're boosted again 
about 12 to 14 months later, and then from there on, it's generally every three years. The veterinarians follow the label directions on the products, on the vaccines. Um, of course, if they have to give a booster at some point because there's been some exposure, that's, that's perfectly illegal. Um, so it all has to do with the research that's been done on those vaccine products. If the company says that this produces immunity for one year, then the veterinarians have to give that uh, booster in one year's time, and that has to be reflected on the, the certificate that you get, the rabies certificate from your veterinarian. I think you just touched on this, but uh, just wanted to answer this question directly. Do barn cats, cats that live outdoors all the time on farms, animals used for rodent control, etc., need to be vaccinated yearly? I've heard different opinions on this. According to the law in Pennsylvania, animals that don't share any time inside with humans are not legally required to be vaccinated. And some people say, well, that's ridiculous. Those are the ones that are most likely right. to be exposed. Why is that? Well, the truth is it would be really completely unenforceable for us to enforce a rabies vaccination law on outdoor cats. There are so many of them that just live on their own um, yeah, and, and have the, no owners whatsoever. You don't whatso see the vaccination whatsoever. tag around their neck. Exactly. Or right. Sadly, yeah. they're not exempt from developing rabies. And this is where we see most of our rabid cat situations in mm -hmm. feral cat colonies unvaccinated outdoor cats and the classic cat story is there's a stray cat that's been hanging around my house for several months never could get too close to it all of a sudden it got real friendly started rubbing up and down on my my leg and then it attacked and there you have right. your rabid cat we hear that story all the time over and over again and those are unvaccinated cats third question rabies shots are usually only given after exposure are there people who should receive the vaccination beforehand Yes, high risk mm -hmm. groups. Um, yeah, like so us. You too, you Basically too. us, yeah. Uh, yes, I was vaccinated <laughs> in vet school. Um, so, yeah, veterinarians, veterinary technicians, hunters and trappers, people who spend a lot of time handling wildlife, people in animal shelters. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, this was from uh, a person who said that their entire family received the rabies vaccination series after a bat was found in the house where everyone was sleeping. And the bat, unfortunately, did not make it to the Department of Agriculture labs for testing. Bats can bite young children heavy sleepers without the person knowing it. I received boosters after handling a cat that had been attacked by a fox. I'm the neighborhood raccoon handler. Oh, my. So, <laughs> awesome job. <laughs> so we have raccoon whisperer. <laughs> it, it is true that you can be bitten by a bat, especially if you're sleeping and not know it. And certainly young children would never be able to tell you they were exposed exposed to a bat. So if you find a bat in your home, in the living quarters of your home, then that bat should be tested. Um, bear in mind, it does need to be a deceased bat. And it should be well-preserved. Bats deteriorate very, very rapidly. And so if you want it tested, it has to be kept cold until it be, can, can go to the laboratory. I just, I'm learning so much here today. <laughs> Bats deteriorate quickly. Why? Well, they're very, very tiny. They're tiny. They're just oh, yeah. so small, okay. so they, yeah. so, they so dry so out. So people they deteriorate? Rot. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about rabies here in Pennsylvania, and we're trying to answer a lot of questions here. Our guest today, Amy Kunis, Executive Director of the Humane Society of the Harrisburg area, and Dr. Elizabeth Santini, who's a veterinarian with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can go on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. 
1-800-529-1732. Another email from a listener related to your vaccination conversation. Part of the problem is not the cost of the vaccine. It's the cost of the rest of the vet visit that is prohibitive. Additionally, it's difficult for the aging population to get their animals anywhere outside of their home. Can you also ask your guest about skunks and rabies? I have uh, heard they carry rabies but did not get infected. Uh, they're interesting because there's an increasing number of skunks in my area, and I'm concerned for my children's safety. Let's go back to the vet cost. Uh, probably a point there that uh, if it was just getting vaccinated for uh, for rabies, it's one thing, but there are other, and just like going to the doctor if you're mm-hmm. human, there are costs involved. Right. Well, that's why we encourage... That's why we encourage people to use the low-cost clinics because there there is no vet cost. It's literally ten dollars. You you show up and it's ten dollars to get the animal vaccinated, and that's where there has been an out an, a rise of these low-cost clinics throughout the community. Um, they uh, again, other animal welfare organizations offer them. They're oftentimes partnered with places like a tractor supply or maybe your local farm supply organization um, might offer them. And there there is a licensed veterinarian on you know on staff that will. Be be issuing certificates for either the one-year or the three-year vaccine. So that's why there is um, kind of that outcrop of, of these vaccine clinics. We also don't just offer our clinics, for example, at the shelter. We have clinics at the shelter at 7790 Grayson Road, but we'll partner with an organization like the Hamilton Health Center, and we'll offer vac- vaccines for different clinic days with Hamilton Health Center. We partner with Community Aid. And we offer vaccine clinics at their location. So we try to get out into the community because that that young lady is absolutely right. Um, it is difficult whether um, you're elderly or you maybe your family all shares one car or maybe you don't have a car. It is tough um, because animals can't can't go in public transportation to sometimes even get there. So there's a lot of organizations out there that try to be out in the community and hopefully close enough to where you are that you can make it to one of the clinics pay the $10 and and know that your animal and your family is is safe against the rabies um, virus. By the way, uh, if there are other organizations out there that are offering uh, the low cost of the free clinics, go to our website, WITF.org, in the comments section down below and list some of them, and uh, that way you'll have kind of a catalog, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, her other question was about skunks. Oh, skunks get rabies, and some years they're number two, um, second only to raccoons. So they certainly do develop rabies, uh, clinical rabies. They spread rabies, um, and um, we see that we see that every year. So it is true that they do get rabies, and um, they're one of our, our leading wildlife vectors in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another email here. It says, please explain what happens if you do not seek immediate treatment for rabies. My cousin was bitten by a rabbit cat in Virginia. It did not, one of those four bites, by the way. It did not seek treatment. It ended up in the ICU. It was not pleasant what he went through, and people need to understand how serious it is for human exposure. Before you answer that question, Dr. Santini, I want to go back to one of our basic questions. We talked about uh, the symptoms in animals. What about the symptoms in humans? 
It can take a, a highly variable amount of time for humans to show signs of rabies, up to a year in some cases, which is unusual, but it can happen. And humans develop similar neurologic signs to animals in, in some cases. Usually... Dumb um, and furious people. <laughs> some, sometimes they become very, very agitated. Um, usually it's a progressive paralysis, and so they'll, they'll lose the use of their legs, um, not able to control their movement very well. Um, um, eventually, it leads to a paralysis of the respiratory system, and so that's how people usually expire from rabies. Mm. Um, so well, that's that's up to a year. Yes, and I'd imagine you wouldn't even a lot of people wouldn't even remember that they had been bitten. That's right. If it takes that long, that's right. Yeah, usually it's within the first weeks to months, but there have been cases where it took up to a year for for folks to show signs of rabies. All right. So getting back to Manuel's question, uh, explain what happens if you do not seek immediate treatment for rabies. You kind of touched on it. Yeah, we used to say that rabies was a hundred percent fatal, and and it almost still is. There have been a few cases where people developed rabies and and their doctors were able to induce comas and essentially let their own immune systems fight off the virus. But then when they emerge from those comas, they're, they're very significantly impaired neurologically. So it's, it's not like it's a, it's a cure-all. Generally, if you develop signs of rabies, then you will expire. You will die of, of that disease. How often do we have uh, human deaths of rabies in Pennsylvania? Um, in Pennsylvania, it's been quite a, a few years since we've had a rabies death. On average, in this country, we have about one to two every year. So very, very so small does, number. So it does happen. Humans. It's not a lot. But yeah. it, and it, that's it, because of our public health infrastructure. Yeah. We have excellent access to post-exposure vaccinations, where, as in you know, undeveloped nations, they have very little, um, they have very little access, and so a lot of people worldwide die of rabies. Here's another email. Uh, we have several feral cats roaming our development. I've called the borough twice. This person lives in Shrewsbury in southern York County. Uh, I've called the borough twice and no action was taken. Last week, we even had a cat hiding in our garage. I talked to the animal control officer, said he'd call me back in the evening, which never happened. It turned out the cat was injured and ran away when we tried to get it out. Who's responsible for these cats? I feel they are a public health hazard, but nobody at the borough takes action. It can be a very, very frustrating situation. Um, and, and it's true that no one really owns those cats. Correct. Um, and, and in some cases, those feral cat colonies have kind of been enabled by very well-intentioned people who want to feed them and feel sorry for them. Um, and, and so if you're in a situation where you think you're in imminent danger, um, because you have an animal that you think could be rabid, then then again, you can contact local or state police um, to, to euthanize that animal. Um, but yeah, having a conversation with the township and with the local animal authorities about how to control those feral cat populations is really, really important because they do pose a public health threat. Yeah, and if you're the animal control officer, I think it's a good idea to call the person back if you have a cat in your garage, okay? That, I'm just saying. That seems like an observation. Uh, we have an email from Diane. Apparently she knows you, Amy. She she says, hi, Amy. I've, hi. Tra <laughs> I've trapped and brought two cats to the Humane Society for neutering. We also paid for rabies vaccines at that time, which have since expired. Festus and Newly, do you recognize Festus and Newly? I, I, I don't, but I might to see them. Okay. <laughs> Festus and Newly have been released and are doing well in the community. How do those of us attempting to control the population through such means get subsequent shots short of capturing them? Our vet will not allow us to bring them to the clinic and they go crazy and they have a heart, so I'm not sure how they could be easily vaccinated. That That is um, a kind of a current issue that people that do a lot of TNR are grappling with right now. TNR. 
um, trap, neuter, and return. Okay. So, you know, managing the feral cat population through spay and neuter methodology. Um, and that's kind of an issue that the whole, that whole community is dealing with. Um, you know, it, it is cost costly to do the, the spay and do the neuter. And a lot of organizations are, you know, either not actually not doing the rabies vaccine at all when they trap the animal um, just because it's so cost prohibitive. So I think right now the best solution to that is to get the three-year, you know, get the three-year vaccine. There really isn't any other magic um, way to do it because with a cat that is truly feral, she's absolutely right. A vet's office is not going to be not going to be inclined to to vaccinate that animal on an annual basis because they can't they can't be handled appropriately, um, and many times with a feral cat, um, you know the only way to vaccinate them is is to sedate them, to to a certain extent. So the best thing I think we can do if you are um, participating in TNR is to get the longest rabies vaccine out there, which right now is three years. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, we have a few minutes left. If you have another question or comment, uh, some good questions coming in, 1-800-729-7532. But uh, we do have some open lines right now. Um, when is it too late to start the rabies vaccination after an exposure? If you've had a known exposure or or suspect you've had an exposure, then it, it's, it's never... Uh, too late unless you start to develop signs. So um, if it goes untreated and and then you realize that that could have happened to you, then you should go right away. You should go to the emergency room and they will start right away. Certainly it's much, much better to do it right at the time of exposure. Um, they'll vaccinate around the bite wound. They'll also give you other vaccinations in those time intervals. So, you know, soon is better, um, but never just let it go thinking, oh, if I didn't get it right away, then it's no good for me to get it now. Never, ever do that. I kind of want to go back to, we had touched on this earlier, uh, about the animal that uh, is suspected to have rabies, how they should be brought in and all that. Mm -hmm. How does someone go about collecting that animal? I mean, especially if it's an animal that is amongst the furious, uh, is a wild animal. How do they go about, how do you go about capturing that animal or at least telling you how to sure. go about capturing that sure. animal? Sure. Well, if it's, a, if it's a wild animal, as we, we kind of touched on, that, that really most likely is going to be the game commission um, for most areas. Um, Pennsylvania is, is an interesting state. There's interesting dynamics. Um, you know, sometimes you may get a quicker response from that particular uh, state police barracks. Sometimes you may get a quicker response from the municipality because they have an animal control officer. Um, but it can also be the game commission calling them immediately and having them come out and secure the animal. If you're not able to secure the animal or the animal is acting that you know erratically that it's not safe for you to do so, the best thing that you can do for the, um, the individual that you are contacting is keep track of where the animal is at least know, you know, this is about where the animal is, is located and hanging out. Um, if, it's a, if it's a rabbit animal and, again, it's acting erratically or neurological, it, it could end up going anywhere. So just kind of keeping an eye on where that animal is until the person can come out and retrieve it is probably the best thing you can do versus trying to do it yourself. What about, and I mean, we have laws against animal cruelty, obviously. Uh, let's face it, things have changed. Uh, it used to be that big landowners, farmers, they saw an animal that they suspected uh, had a problem like that, they would destroy that animal. I assume you do not recommend that. Well, again, um, you know, you do, in order for the animal to be tested, there there does need to be a certain right. preservation of the 
of the body, if you will. So so that's reason number one. Reason number two is you, you might you might be wrong. Um, you know, if the if the animal is clearly obviously acting aggressively towards you, um, that's a different issue, certainly. But you you might not know what you're looking at. You could genuinely be looking at a sick animal. Um, so do bears get rabies? I'm they, thinking. I'm thinking bigger animals. Yeah, I'm going they can. Um, in fact, uh, I wouldn't want to see a damn rabbit bear. <laughs> uh, that would be. That's horrifying. Actually, <laughs> we, have, we have only had one in Pennsylvania. It was in Center County a few years ago, and it was a, a very interesting story. That the bear was a sow with cubs. It had been found dead, um, and uh, the game commission investigated and didn't find any any gunshot wounds or any uh, wounds associated with uh, hit by car. So they took it for a, a necropsy for an animal autopsy. And when they did the autopsy, they discovered that she had parts of her own cubs in her stomach. And they thought that's not normal behavior. And so they tested that bear for rabies and, and lo and behold, she was positive for rabies. Wow. And there have been other cases of rabid bears, both in Maryland and Virginia. And in both cases, they're very, very aggressive bears. So now, it doesn't happen often, well, but when great. it does, it's not good. I mean, hypothetically, yeah. hypothetically there, did, did, did any of the cubs survive? Not not to our knowledge. And if no. they if they would have, would they have carried? Potentially, yeah. So she would have been grooming them with her tongue and she would right. be feeding them. And rabies can come through milk as well. Uh, so potentially she could have spread it to, to her cubs that way. But apparently she she went a little furious and she destroyed them. She ate them instead. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Let's take a phone call from Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Hello, Mary. All right, let me make sure this is Mary, because I, uh, no. Hello, are you are you there? Hello? Yeah, you're not Mary. Right, this, is, this is not Mary, this is Barry. <laughs> oh, okay, well, oh. okay, sorry about that, Barry. What, what? Yeah, that's, no, that's fine, I just I was looking. Um, yeah, my question is uh, regarding vaccinating animals and why in Pennsylvania, I know some states will accept uh, titers as proof of resistance, uh, you know, the, the immune system of animals is sufficient to, uh, you know, keep at bay the infection of rabies and other diseases. And for those of us who uh, are concerned about the over-vaccinating of our animals, while we, of course, are concerned about the spread of these diseases that go through the domestic population and wild populations of animals, why it is that the veterinarian industry, industry does not get behind and support the idea of titers as proof of sufficient health of these animals to be out in the public and out in the wilderness. And in addition to that, I'd like to say, with regards to not being able to enforce the vaccination of loose cats, feral cats on farms, I think that's a local issue and a political issue that is kind of tiptoeing around the agricultural industry to be responsible with these animals in, in the community. So I'd appreciate any input on those issues. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Barry. The question about titers is a, is a great one, and that has to do with us measuring the immune response of the animal uh, to the vaccine that they've been given. So we don't have the confidence in titers that we do in, in the actual vaccine. We know that the vaccine companies have done the research to show that it confers certain protective immunity for certain duration. Um, and also, it's a very, very safe vaccine. We see very, very few reactions to rabies vaccine. And so uh, most states do not accept rabies titers as um, as proof of vaccination or instead of vaccination. Um, and the, the question about um, 
unvaccinated outdoor cats. Um, it is true that while some people do take responsibility for their outdoor cats, we have many, many places where cats are just dropped off. We have farms mm -hmm. all the time where people just drop animals off thinking they just want more cats. Mm -hmm. And should that be the responsibility of the landowner to, to vaccinate and to pay for the care for those animals um, when they really didn't choose to have them on their properties in the first place? Mm. We only have about 45 seconds left, and I want to thank both of you for being on. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope our audience did, too. Amy, what kind of advice would you give people uh, who may be concerned about an animal to protect themselves? What kind of advice would you give our listeners? Um, I would definitely suggest going on to the Pennsylvania Department of Health website, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture website. Educate yourself now on what to do. Should you be bitten or should your animal be bitten? If you have any questions, you can certainly use the Humane Society as a resource. But advocate and educate yourself on what the laws are um, and, and what you need to do to make sure you're protecting your family. And the other thing that I would want to throw in um, to just kind of dovetail on the cat comment is check out our website, but check out Nobody's Cats Foundation because the concept is they really are nobody's cats and it might have some good helpful advice for some people that have those concerns. Amy Kunis with the Humane Society of Harrisburg area, Dr. Elizabeth Santini with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about different bites, shark bites, coming up on tomorrow's show.